Okay, um, good morning um, and welcome to our event. There's a lot of echo here. Yeah. Um, uh, good morning and welcome to our event on Britain and the EU after the referendum. Well, I guess when we were planning this, um, uh, this event, we uh, didn't expect the outcome. Um, I think most people didn't. And so um, uh, I think the room is much fuller than we were predicting, but that's, uh, that's um, okay, uh, that's, that's live. And uh, so what we want to do today is we want to have an open debate um, on this issue. I've prepared myself a few introductory remarks, and then I would like to give um, the floor to uh, uh, Glenn, um, and I'm sorry for the pronunciation, Bokem? Close enough. Close enough, okay who's the chief executive of the British Chamber of Commerce in Belgium. Um, and then I will um, turn to um, uh, my, the other co-panelists, including Bernadette Segol, um, former Secretary General of the European Trade Union Confederation, um, uh, Philipp Steinberg, uh, Chief of Staff to the German Vice Chancellor Sigmar Gabriel and at the Ministry of Economic um, Affairs and Energy, um, James Watson, um, Director of Economics at Business Europe, André Zapir, and Maria de Merzis. So we have a pretty long panel, in fact. Um, um, so we have to be rather concise. So each of us will speak five minutes. And then we want to have a bit of a debate among ourselves and then, of course, open the floor um, uh, to you for questions and remarks. The event is on the record and it's being live streamed. Okay, so let me, let me start. I mean, uh, this will be a victory for real people, a victory for ordinary people, a victory for decent people. These are the words of Nigel Farage on June 24, celebrating what he described as Independence Day. And he goes on. We have fought against the multinationals. We have fought against the big merchant banks. We have fought against big politics. We have fought against lies, corruption, and deceit. And today, honesty, decency, and belief in nation, I think now is going to win. I hope this victory brings down this failed project and leads us to Europe of sovereign nation states. I end the quote. I mean, these are strong words which I think will resonate across the UK, across the EU, and in fact across the world for quite some time and will need substantial debate in the coming months. Let me start with six quick reflections. The first one is, what does it mean to say a victory of real, ordinary, and decent people in the face of 75% of young voters to have voted to remain? Poor cities like Glasgow to have voted um, for remain and keep their rights as EU citizens. Distinguishing between real and unreal people is, in fact, divisive language and should be called as such. Within 24 hours of this victory, social media were full of reports of xenophobic attacks on decent and real people with foreign backgrounds living in the UK. In significant parts, I would argue this has been a poisonous and alienating campaign. My second point is on the UK itself. I think the referendum has put the UK in a political and constitutional crisis, and clearly um, the Brexit proponents um, had not believed what would happen and we're not prepared. We, we've seen the issues in Scotland. Uh, we've seen that uh, Labour leadership is in uh, uh, um, disarray. We've seen that um, so far no one really wanted to take responsibility for triggering Article 50 exit negotiations. I think in such, such circumstances, external pressure 
is unlikely to be very helpful. It is the UK that legally and formally has to start the official process um, of Article 50, triggering Article 50, and the EU should respect that, in my view. The political and constitutional crisis in the UK can only be solved there. My, my third point is about multinationals and merchant banks and how much um, this uh, accusation is really related to the EU. And let me make a number of observations here. Let's first note that income inequality in the United Kingdom is substantially higher than in most continental European countries. The big ones, I mean. Let's also note that the EU represents 22% of world GDP, but 50% of welfare spending. Let's note that the EU has, in fact, defined a right of workers, for example, in a working right directive. Let's note that Jeremy Corbyn has warned, has warned of a workers' right bonfire in, in the case the UK leave the EU. Let's note that many regions that are benefiting from the EU transfer in the UK were the ones that have strongly voted in favor of ex exiting the EU, paradoxically. But let's also not fool ourselves. The perception of increased pressure on the middle class, the falling labor shares, and the high youth unemployment in Southern Europe are serious problems that need to be addressed. The EU is, in my view, providing answers uh, to these problems, but clearly not good enough answers. But compared to other regions, such as the United States, our social and economic model still produces less inequality, and this is an important success. So I think Brussels and the national capitals need to work on this issue and address this issue seriously. It requires macroeconomic policies that are more counter-cyclical and social policies targeted at greater social mobility. It also requires us to agree on appropriate corporate and inheritance taxation. But whether these economic issues have been the main issue in the UK is, I think, a rather open question. I think it's something we should debate. My fourth point um, is on how the EU can and should negotiate with the UK once it triggers and if it triggers Article 50. I think we are seeing already two different approaches. Um, Chancellor Merkel, um, you have seen, is willing to give time and to be accommodating to some of the UK's likely demands, not least in view of domestic economic interests. She has also emphasized the need to focus on the EU 27. France, in turn, seems to take a rather hard line towards the UK and puts the focus on the euro area. In my view, our approach should be based on principles, on our principles, in fact. If the UK wants to trade with the continent, it can only be if it respects the acquis, so the common body of law. For example, if it does not respect the above-mentioned workers' rights directive, trade should be penalized to avoid social dumping on the continent. It will be central to insist on all achievements of the single market. A central area of negotiations will be about financial services, and as you have seen, the stepping down of British Commissioner Jonathan Hill is a sign how British influence on financial matters is probably li is likely to shrink. I think it is an important but also open question how much of financial services will move from London. The EU budget dimension is probably less important, but I think it will also be a, fear, uh, a point of, of hot debate. 
Let's go to point five. Does the EU need reform? I think the answer is clearly yes, and I think many Bruegel scholars, uh, including uh, two of them sitting left uh, on my left, um, have um, contributed and have made proposals um, how to reform uh, the European Union. I think um, in an interconnected world, um, one cannot take an isolationist approach, and I think we have always tried to emphasize that one has to deal with globalization in a, in a, in a, in a joint way. What kind of reforms should we be focusing on? I think I have three quick ones, um, and I don't, want, don't have time to go in detail. I think there is clearly the euro area and its governance with a particular emphasis on better demand management. I think there is the issue of the relation between the euro area and those uh, outside of the euro area, because once the UK has left, um, the non-euro area countries re represent only 15% of EU GDP. And there's certainly the issue of social and inclusive growth, um, including the issue of the intergenerational divide in, in southern Europe. My last point is on economic urgencies, which I think we, we will also have to debate. And I would quickly mention three. One is financial stability. I think it's urgent, important to manage financial stability, and that's mostly a task for central banks. But politics should be supportive of central bank action, um, in particular when it comes to the European Central Bank. The second is about macroeconomic policies. I think the Brexit shock is likely to weigh on economic growth and to weigh on, uh, on, our, uh, on our, our, our weak recovery. And as we know, when inflation is already as low as it is, monetary policy is more limited. So clearly, fiscal policies and structural policies should be ready to act if necessary. My last point is on the stabilization of the UK economy. I think monetary policy still has a little bit of leeway, but not that much, in fact. And the fiscal deficit com combined with the current account deficit also put a limit on, on effective policy action. Uh, of course, the depreciation of the uh, UK con I mean, of the UK uh, pound, uh, pound sterling, uh, will help. But I would say there may be also some reputational um, damage from the fallout that we are seeing over this weekend. So I think with 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 these introductory remarks, I wanted to set the scene. And I'm sorry, usually I don't do this when I when I chair, but um, <laughs> but I felt sort of uh, too emotional this weekend <laughs> that I, I thought I wanted to give these these introductory remarks. Now I think without much further ado, uh, let me give the floor to uh, to you, Glenn, um, for your initial reactions, and then Bernadette, and then we then Philip and James. Please, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that I'm speaking as the, uh, as the head of an organization which uh, was uh, very clear in its, uh, in its advice uh, and in the view of its members that we should remain, uh, that there should be a vote to remain, and that it would be bad for business and bad for the economy, bad for the UK, and bad for the rest of Europe if there was a vote to leave. Uh, but okay, we are where we are. Uh, I think that the first thing to say is that the UK is still in Europe. It's still just over there. It's still an enormously important economic and political partner for the EU27. And that doesn't change overnight. 
So when I look at that situation and I look at that from the context of, of, of our business, the businesses which are our members, then I think that's really important. That's a really important starting point. Just to get a sense of that relationship, we're also the British Chamber of Commerce for bilateral relations between the UK and Belgium. And Belgium, this relatively small country, is a top 10 global export market for the UK. Um, and if you put the Netherlands and Luxembourg into that, in the, the Benelux area is a huge economic partner for the UK, close to the volume of trade between the UK and the US. So that's, a, that's just a sense of how important just this small northwestern corner of Europe is to the UK and how big that relationship is. When I look at the importance of that relationship and we start talking about divorce, then I think, how would I think about divorce in those circumstances? And the first thing that I would think about is the kids. For me, what's important here is to save as much of the good of that relationship as possible. That means us all being very grown up, very stoic, taking the hurt, but getting on and making a deal, finding a way to work things out, because if we don't, it's gonna hurt all of our kids. The context for the vote in the UK that I was talking about uh, when I was going around talking in the months before the referendum, um, I felt was very important. In particular, the economic fragility of the UK and many others, even if we, our chancellor this morning is saying that we're in a very strong position to face this, 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 difficult, uh, the, this difficult process now. Falling wages, job insecurity, huge job insecurity felt by many people, political fragmentation, insurgents on the rise within the main parties and beyond the main parties. And I thought, doesn't that sound familiar to anyone else? It certainly does to me here in Belgium. I think that that's a very important context for all of us to think about for, for all of the, uh, the, the EU 27 countries as well as the UK. The UK now has to decide how to deal with its mess. We have a situation where we have a prime minister in office, but not in power as the standard phrase goes, and a process where the Conservative Party has to find a new leader who will presumably then need to think about his program, will have to come up with the solutions, will have to deal with that mess and also the consequences directly. Whether that means as well then a new election, I don't know, but that's certainly a, an important question. 
And I think that from there, we have presumably a couple of years to sort things out. If I come back to a business perspective, I think that we need to, we need that process to think about saving the best of the relationship. That economic relationship is hugely important and indeed that political relationship is hugely important. And that's hugely important for the future of our economy uh, and our security. I believe that the UK would have been stronger, better, and safer in. But here we are, and we have to deal with it. Thank you, Glenn. Um, Bernadette. Thank you very much. Um, you gave us five minutes, and uh, I have five main points to make. The first, the first point I would like to make after this uh, referendum is that inequalities matter, that social cohesion matters, that fair society matters, and that the austerity, the pressure on wages, all the policies that have been implemented during these years have had consequences, and consequences that we are feeling now and, of course, feeling um, badly. We have a full-scale example of um, the consequences of policies that have been recommended by economists, by politicians, and um, uh, it shows that we have to be much more responsible uh, when we promote those, those sorts of policies, and that should be a lesson for now and for the future. The second point I want to make is that words matter. For many years now, um, UK politicians, but also uh, other politicians in other countries, have been bashing Europe. They came back saying, EU is bad. EU, Europe, Brussels is this, Brussels is that, the elite is that, the, the technocrats are this. And so, including trade unions, I, I must say that we've been saying that, although we always say that we were for uh, the European Union, I think the message being so negative has been listened to. And when you listen to programs on, on television, on British television, and you can see what people are thinking about Europe. So uh, I think we have to be very careful in what we are saying, in the, in the way we are speaking about what matters uh, for the future, our future and the future of our children, and in my case, grandchildren. Third point I want to make is, what should we do now? And that's certainly a very difficult thing, because uncertainty is prevailing. Uh, UK, which was, and uh, I say was, a model for stability and uh, 
political, um, we have political stability uh, is now nowhere. Uh, you know, Tory party, Labour party, uh, I think they don't know where they are going. No one has a clue where to go. So in these circumstances, I think I would not precipitate things. I quite agree that uh, it is in the hands of uh, the UK to start the process but and to trigger the Article 50. But triggering this Article 50 in a political mess is probably not the best thing to do. I understand the arguments that say, you know, we have to save uh, other countries to, uh, to try and, and escape and do the same. But I, I, I think that some time is necessary uh, now. I also would say, uh, speak with one voice. I feel quite sorry to hear from Mrs. Merkel uh, A and from François Hollande B, and I haven't heard what uh, Renzi had to say, but it's probably C. And uh, well, if there is a lesson to be drawn from this, is that uh, leaders have to get together and, and put the act together. And it is possible, of course, it is possible. Take this as an opportunity. I don't think that the European Union will be uh, destroyed by that. I think it could be an opportunity, provided we have leaders that can do it. Whether it's the case or not, I leave it to your appreciation. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to go into that now. I would also say under this chapter what to do, social Europe matters. Social Europe matters. If we build a Europe which is competition, 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 and bringing people against each other, that's the result we're going to have. Uh, will leaders understand that? Uh, we've been saying that for years. Uh, now, uh, people should realize what it means. Social Europe matters. If you are building only a Europe on competition, then that's the result. The fourth point is a bit more philosophical, uh, probably a, a bit more complicated, but I've been reflecting this weekend uh, and before on the notion of sovereignty. Everyone, everybody, every citizen wants to be sovereign. And when I hear some of the, uh, well, ordinary people, I don't know what is an ordinary people, but saying we want to get back our sovereignty, I say, yes, of course you want to. But at the same time, we are all watching television to look at the stock exchange and the pound and what's going to happen to the financial sector and everything is directed by that, by the financial sector, by the fact that we are governed by uh, the, the stability and the, the perspective uh, of the financial sector, by the fact that uh, we could have another crash. And if that is sovereignty, 
this is not the sovereignty we want. I think we have to reflect on that. What does mean sovereignty? The first thing for me in terms of sovereignty would be that we would not that Oh, no, it's not for me. <laughs> I thought it was some sort of emergency call, but it isn't. <laughs> and the fifth point I wanted to make, <laughs> the fifth point I, I wanted to make concerns migration. Of course, migration is an issue. Of course, we cannot deal with that question simply with good words and uh, goodwill. This is not enough. We should not leave the question of migration to right-wingers. It is a problem, it's a cultural problem, it's a social problem, it is a human problem, it has economic and uh, human implication. It scares workers. It scares workers because they see that there is a competition on wages and it is perceived as a threat. The, the, the point is, that this is not there to, it is there to stay. We can't uh, just say, you know, it will be over tomorrow. So we have to deal with migration as a political question for the, for the EU. I'm saying for the EU on purpose. It's not simply a question for one country. So to, um, and it's a big challenge for uh, integration, certainly. So to conclude, uh, I think uh, we should leave UK the time to find its back on its feet, political feet. Uh, we should face the challenges that the EU is facing and take that as an opportunity to really know where we want to go. And thirdly, see that we have big challenges for the future I mentioned uh, migration. I mentioned financial stability. I would also mention the question of environment, and that, that would be the challenges we have to face, the main challenges we have to face uh, in the future. Thank you very much. Let me give the floor to André Zapier, Senior Fellow at Bruegel. Thank you very much. Um, let me make three points. Uh, the first point, um, trying to draw some lessons from, uh, from the vote, and then two points about uh, moving, uh, moving forward. Uh, I think the situation is not, uh, is not pretty, and uh, is not pretty because it does remind one of uh, the situation in, in the 1930s. I think we cannot uh, look at this uh, without making a connection with the uh, crisis that started in uh, in 2007 2008 and then took a, a turn further uh, in Europe uh, after after 2010 uh, when i see the uh, the situation in the uk when i see the situation in the us when i see the situation in a number of other countries uh, in europe where there has been a, a rise of uh, of populism uh, a rise of nationalism and a rise of vote, uh, which is essentially an anti-elite uh, 
uh, vote. Uh, not just, an, I think this vote was not just, a, not just an anti-Brussels vote. Uh, I think it was also an anti-London vote. Uh, it was also an anti-establishment uh, vote. Uh, it seems to me uh, that one cannot put this mood uh, of the real people uh, wanting to, uh, to take back control uh, of, uh, of Washington, or London or uh, of Brussels uh, in abstraction from, uh, from the crisis. Uh, we maybe in this room uh, may feel that indeed the, uh, the crisis is, uh, is behind us uh, because we live in a relatively protected uh, environment, but obviously it means that some of the real people and some of the real people who are the most motivated, uh, and we have seen that it's in this particular vote uh, in, in, the, in the UK, it was uh, the Leave camp that was the most uh, motivated. Uh, those that were most in favor, one has talked about uh, the young people, 75% uh, who were voting in favor, but their participation rate was also the lowest. So the highest participation rate was among those uh, that were for, for the Leave camp, though real people wanting to take back uh, control of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the politics. So yes, I think the, uh, we are paying, we, uh, uh, what is called sometimes the Western democracies, uh, I think we are paying a price for uh, not having handled uh, the crisis uh, properly or at least suf being sufficiently uh, attuned to uh, the need of the, uh, of the real people. So I, 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 I do want to put this in, in this broader framework. Uh, not look at this vote only as an anti-Europe an, or anti-Brussels uh, vote, but as I said, uh, it, it was not a surprise, obviously, that Donald Trump uh, immediately uh, jumped onto this, and uh, I was obviously shocked as a, as a citizen uh, to see that the first reactions in, in Europe were coming from Wilders and from, uh, Marie, Le, uh, from uh, Marie Le Pen, uh, you know, who obviously saw uh, more wind in their sail. And I think this is what is the, 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 the scary part of it, is that there is a lot of discontent out there uh, for what is still uh, some of the implication of the crisis that came on top of a situation that was already uh, not pretty of stagnating income uh, for, the, uh, for the middle classes or for a situation that are more difficult, more displacement of jobs and you know, this great transformation that we have been, uh, we have been writing about uh, is something real for uh, some of the people uh, certainly, and for, I think, a large uh, proportion of the people. So uh, we have not been able, and I think one has to acknowledge that, uh, we have not been able in Europe uh, to give a credible response uh, to this, nor to do a credible European response. Uh, we have a very dispersed response. Uh, by uh, different countries, uh, going in very opposite directions. And those opposite re responses have been uh, reinforcing the credibility that, in a sense, it's the national response, uh, which is the, uh, which is the, uh, the, the, the right uh, response. And th this is the message that we have heard from the, from the, uh, from the nationalists and from the, from the populists. You know, bring back uh, 
power to, uh, to our national capital, this is where uh, answers can be given. And those answers have been very often, as it is the case in, in a bad situation, uh, they've been uh, responses of a bit of beggar thy neighbor. Uh, let's do things uh, in our country, but to the detriment uh, of, uh, of others. So I think, yes, the, uh, the political narrative I think the political classes, I'm not saying that we, the economists, don't bear a responsibility, but I think the weakness uh, of the political classes uh, in these uh, difficult times, uh, I think we are paying a very, very happy price. Uh, second point, um, what, uh, what, to do, uh, what to do now? Uh, let's talk first about uh, Europe. And then about, finally, third point about the relationship between uh, Europe, the, the EU, and the, the United uh, Kingdom. Uh, we are uh, head of, uh, of a summit uh, tomorrow uh, and, the day, uh, and the day after. Um, one does hope, uh, though not with great enthusiasm, that uh, leaders uh, will be able to, uh, to give some messages and beyond messages some uh, decisions. Uh, I think that indeed uh, they do need to show their capacity to, uh, to move uh, in, in, in a much more uh, European manner uh, to, uh, to, this, uh, to this crisis. And as I said, in, in certain, in some places, situation is better. In some places, it is not good. But what has not been felt on the part of citizens is that Europe uh, has been able to give answers, and answers uh, that are going in, in the same uh, direction, not answers that you know one country is pulling in one direction, other countries are pulling in, in the uh, other directions. Uh, that is all certainly reinforcing the, uh, the discourse of, of populists and uh, nationalists. Uh, we do need to have more European answers. Uh, have we tried to do too much in Europe? Uh, have we tried to uh, put in place policies that we have done only half-heartedly, uh, like in the Euro uh, domain, uh, in monetary union, like in uh, migration issues? Uh, the answer is yes. And that means that probably in those areas uh, where the cost uh, of uh, dismantling those policies would be absolutely huge, uh, we, we do need to go uh, forward with uh, additional uh, measures. But probably it means also that in some other areas, uh, one needs uh, less Europe. Uh, probably Europe is doing too many things and doing it not to the satisfaction of the citizens, not a Europe that, that delivers. Uh, Europe needs to deliver more, uh, maybe in fewer areas, uh, but it needs to, to deliver more. Uh, I think that's what uh, is meant by a, a, better, uh, a better Europe. Then finally about the, the, the relationship with the, the, the UK. Uh, I listened to what Glenn uh, Vaughan uh, said, and um, though I, I would have shared his view, uh, I think that unfortunately it's wishful thinking. That is the view of the Remain camp, uh, and I'm certainly a would have been a strong, strongly in the Remain camp, but the view of the Remain camp that there will be no consequence essentially of this. That, uh, well, you know, the people have expressed themselves, but uh, we are going to find an arrangement that is more or less going to replicate the arrangement that we have at the moment 
uh, I think that is going to be wishful thinking from a political viewpoint. Uh, I wish it were possible, uh, but I think it will not be possible. When I look at the different models, whether this is the Norwegian model, the Swiss model, all, all of those models that are more or less preserving the, uh, internal, uh, the internal market, uh, those models uh, are not models that those who voted to leave would vote for. Uh, they would vote even less for that model than uh, the model that they had uh, at the moment. So I think uh, this is going to be a huge task of the new political leadership in the UK to sell something like, well, you know, we have voted to leave, but we are remaining in the single market as if nothing had happened. I think this will not work. I wish it could. Uh, not saying I don't wish it could, but I just don't think it will fly uh, by, the, uh, by, by those voters in the, the UK. So I don't think we, sh we should fool ourselves. Uh, I think neither of those models will work, neither the Swiss model, which, by the way, the EU is not uh, wanting to offer, nor the uh, Norwegian model, which the EU is very much willing to offer, uh, I think are feasible from, from a political viewpoint. So what I personally fear, and I finish on that, uh, and I fear that, uh, is that the only politically feasible model from both the UK, given where we are politically, and the EU, is going to be a much diminished relationship, more of something like the Canadian model. Uh, it's going to be more something of a free trade area. I think it will preserve, obviously, for trade in goods. Nothing much will happen. There, I think, uh, we can be uh, fairly, uh, fairly safe. Uh, I think trade in services, including obviously financial services, this is a very different matter. Uh, mobility of labor, let's, uh, let's, forget about, uh, let's forget about that. And that means that we will not have any more a single market between the EU and the UK. Uh, it will be a single market, minus, minus, minus. And this is going to be much closer to a free trade area, a sophisticated free trade area, like the agreement uh, that uh, we have now uh, probably with, uh, with Canada. Let me stop here. Thank you. Um, Philip. Yeah, thank you very much, Guntram. Um, thank you for the invitation. Um, I can follow on from that, and obviously I'm speaking here in my personal capacity and not for, for the German uh, government. Um, uh, let me uh, start with the sentence, uh, Glenn, you made. You said, let's think about the kids. Um, yes, um, certainly, let's think about the kids, but we have to accept as well that divorces are messy, and divorces are never good for the kids. And there, I can follow on, uh, on, on from what uh, um, uh, Andre Safir said. Um, um, we have to accept the consequences of this referendum. And we cannot just try to invent something, uh, make our own history as pro-Europeans, and uh, not accept this referendum. There, I'm totally go, uh, going along with Andre Safir. Um, there will be no new deal for Great Britain. That is quite sure from my opinion, and I think uh, at least uh, the Social Democrats in Germany are pressing for speedy renegotiations for the relationships between the EU and Great Britain. Of course, Great Britain is a part of Europe and remains a part of Europe, and we will um, do everything to um, accommodate to this new situation we have to uh, live up to. But certainly what we cannot do is just wait 
and see you said, uh, Bernadette, you said like, like, oh, in a mess, we cannot start, we cannot trigger the Article 50 um, negotiations. But I mean, everybody knew that there would be a mess if you call for a referendum, and there can be, and, and the referendum um, is, turns out from our um, point of view to be negative, then that may be the case, but we cannot just wait and see, and, and see um, well, let's, let's see what, uh, what may happen. So um, I think we need to be honest here, and uh, we need to, for, to, to think of the rest of Europe as well. And I think that, um, of course, we are all sad, and it, it saddens me uh, immensely when I see Jonathan Hill leave and, and many other dedicated UK European politicians. However, um, we should look forward and we should um, continue working for the EU to become better. And I say to become better because I do think um, in spite of all the problems the EU and the Eurozone are still confronted with, and the, the failures in its architecture and all of that. I mean, we should maybe, and there, Bernadette, I agree, we, um, words matter. I think we should speak more positively about the EU. I think, I deeply think that we need to rediscover the European spirit. We have lost a little bit. Uh, we really need to spread the word that only united we are strong and able to live up to today's challenges, be it social, be it um, economical, or be it in the environmental field. Climate change is just the most obvious um, example. Here, I do think that the EU is adding a tremendous value, and we need to make it more clear this value the EU adds in these areas. And of course, we need to continue reforming it. I think Guntram has mentioned a few areas where we have to continue working, and I, I totally agree. I do agree that we need to talk, and not only talk, but we need to act in order to renew the prosperity pledge Europe actually was built upon. And that is a little bit lost, at least in the view of the people, quite ap apparently so. I mean, if there are 21 million unemployed people in Europe, then that is something we just cannot accept. And we have to act upon that. And uh, we need to put that in the center of our, our reform debate. And that, of course, means deepening and expanding the single market, but not forgetting about social rights. I think that goes hand in hand, deepening the single market and safeguarding or even expanding workers' rights. We need to, of course, talk about the Eurozone. We need to, to talk about how to strengthen it, how to fix the failures in its, its architecture. And of course, we, we need to also address the external threats the European Union is uh, confronted um, with. And here, of course, we always, we, we very quickly in the political debates, uh, we come to one question. So, so, but that may be true, but can we actually dare to talk about any reform that might involve treaty change? And obviously, that is something that might be dangerous. And we certainly should not have an institutional debate primarily. We should not only talk about institutional changes. That would be totally wrong. Even if it sounds a bit, bit uh, very often used phrase, I do think we need to, to, to think what is politically right, what is right for the European citizens, and then what follows from that in terms of um, institutional um, changes. Having said that, I, I do think we should not be afraid to think of the future of the European Union as well a little bit more ambitiously. 
And obviously, we need to, to think in, in an incremental way. We need to, to um, as well focus on things that can be done quickly without any, any uh, treaty changes, but we should not exclude this as well, if we think it is necessary. And I do think there are a few, uh, few things, especially concerning the reform of the Eurozone, that we, need, we might need to think about treaty uh, changes. And um, once again, I mean, even if it has been said quite often, I think uh, we should remember it, and uh, because it's right. The founders of the European Union, if they would only have thought what is possible, like in the short run, then we would be, have never arrived where we are today. And so we need to little, be a little bit more ambitious. We need to think of what we want and then, then implement it. Um, therefore, I do think this reflection per, uh, upon Europe, including what is, if we can identify areas where maybe, indeed, Europe should do less. I totally agree, even though that is very difficult. Everybody who is in government knows that we are doing in Germany, we are doing that exercise all the time. And it's very difficult, actually, to, to, to think uh, how to, to cut down on, on uh, bureaucracy and all that. Still, we, we should do it. On the other hand, we need to also think how to recenter the European Union on the needs uh, of, its, uh, of its citizens. Um, once again, I think we need to rediscover the European uh, spirit. We need to make clear what Europe can add on, can, can uh, bring for the citizens. And we need to clarify that obviously, whilst we have to talk about the future of the European, European Union, um, I totally agree with uh, what Guntram said. Of course, this vote was not primarily on the European Union, on the, on the deficiencies of the European Union, but it was, it was the expression of a feeling of helplessness in, uh, confronted with globalization, with rising inequalities, all that. And certainly the EU was not the main cause of that. On the contrary, I think the EU remains and still is our answer to fight those tendencies and to create a better future for its citizens. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, James? Uh, thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to make a number of Business Europe points, but um, I imagine I also um, won't be able to stop myself um, making a few more personal remarks, so I'd be grateful if people um, interpret them just as those as personal remarks, if I do make those. Um, I mean, I think the first point to make um, is to emphasize that we weren't expecting this. Um, I certainly wasn't expecting it. I rang, I rang a couple of former colleagues. I used to work in the Department of Trade and Industry. Um, I rang a, a couple of former colleagues... Uh, over the weekend, and, 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 and their, their thoughts were very much, you know, there is, there is, there is no plan B, certainly in, the, in, in that department. There's no, or at least my colleagues weren't aware of some sort of file that's going to be pulled out tomorrow to explain how this is all going to work. So um, we certainly weren't expecting, I wasn't expecting it, and I, I may well not have signed up for this event um, had, had, had I known this would be the outcome. But uh, there we go. I'm a man of my word, so I'm here. Um, Thank you for coming. <laughs> Um, just in terms of uh, reflections on the campaign, um, I think you're right, absolutely right, Gunthram. It, it wasn't a very constructive campaign. Um, what I was going to say, um, certainly if it had been an in, is that I certainly think that the, the UK people have no better understanding about the EU um, now than they had, did have two months ago as a result of this campaign. I don't think it's, I don't think it's been a particularly informative campaign, and certainly, as I agree with you, um, I don't think it's been particularly constructive. Um, I mean, as others have said... Um, 
Europe wasn't the primary issue that affected this vote, I think. Um, I think somebody put it very well when they said that um, Europe was the shadow, but not the substance of, um, of the discussion that's taken place over the last few months. And of course, um, the substance was, was really around um, migration. Um, and, I think, and I think Bernadette put it, put it, put it very well, actually, um, in terms of, I think, there is a need now to have, um, I'm not sure what your words were, but something around a, a, a grown-up discussion, let's say, about migration, and I think you're absolutely right when you, when you say we can't just, just leave it to the right-wingers. Um, so, so I think we have to have, a, we have, to, we have, to, we have to, as I say, have, a, have that grown-up discussion uh, about migration. I think economists can play a role in that. Um, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a very bad campaign for economists anyway. Everybody, all the economists said, you, you, you mustn't leave, it's going to be terrible, and they were basically ignored. On the migration question in particular, I think, I think the economists can do, can do more informative analysis. I think some of the analysis looking at GDP, looking at productivity, um, I think is, 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 not, is not answering the questions that, that people really want to, want to know about in terms of per capita, um, sorry, in terms of per capita, GDP for the native population um, in terms of some of those, um, some of the inequality questions. So there's a, there's a, there's a role there for the economists, but I think, I think we, we, we say we need to have a, a grown-up discussion um, about migration. I mean, just to, uh, I think, uh, I mean, in terms of drawing, drawing the, broader, the broader story, I mean, Andre, Andre, you mentioned that this, I think you, you, were, in, you were suggesting that this was uh, somehow a vote saying that politicians had failed to deal with the crisis. I mean, I think I, uh, the only thing I'd say on the UK, let's not forget, of course, that the, the, only 12 months ago, the Conservative government, who in a sense had been responsible for dealing with the crisis, had been voted in. So I wouldn't necessarily draw that assumption within the UK, although I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't dismiss it in terms of how we, how we look at the broad analysis of the EU, but I think that's, that's something um, to bear in mind um, in, 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 terms of, in terms of the EU. Um, just, just, to, just to play back on your provocative thoughts um, about, I mean, I think it's, it's terrible that some of, these, um, some of these racist incidents have been taking place, as, as you mentioned, Gunthram. I would, just, I would just not forget, I mean, here we, here we, here we, do, here we do go into the personal. Um, let's not forget that the UK, as a Canadian Bank of England um, governor, um, it has our, our CBI, our Business Federation, as an Irish president. We've had Swedish and Italian managers of our football team, and we also have a Muslim mayor of London. So, the only thing, a personal remark, I would urge people to, you know, to, to, to be cautious be, be, before we, be, you know, in thinking what we say about the UK. And I would also suggest that, although there probably has been a ship gone through, um, you know, I think, I think in many respects, the UK does remain um, that does remain quite an open society. Um, in terms of in terms of in terms of how we go on from now, I think Business Europe has made the point. Um, I mean, our, our, our Director General said um, at the end of last week, um, the UK is an important trading partner. We need to build a new and sustainable relationship with the UK, and that's in everybody's interests. Um, in terms of the broader points about Europe. Um, I think, as, as, all, uh, as been reflected here, we've emphasised the single market, the common trade policy, 
policy in the euro. I think, as Philip, you emphasised a little bit as well, we've also said that Europe needs to focus on where we can really add value added and stay away um, from other matters that are, that are dealt with at the national level. And um, we've talked about outward-looking global, global strategy. Um, implementing smart and less regulation. I would just say on this one, one statistic that, always, that, al that I always think about is if you look at the top 10 European member states in terms of the, 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 the UN's uh, ease of doing business rankings, sorry, the World Bank's ease of doing business rankings. In the top 10 there, you've got Denmark, the UK, Sweden, or in Finland. Um, so it would appear that those countries which are perhaps more Eurosceptic um, also have a better, ease, a better business environment. Um, perhaps that can be broadened to think of a better governance environment. So if you're thinking about voters, thinking about comparative models, whether they want to be in the EU, EU or not, I think this, that's, that's very important in terms of the EU building better regulation um, so, so that it's seen as a, as a better model, if you like, than, than, than what people might see, see, see nationally. So I think that's quite a telling statistic. So we need to drive forward, um, drive forward in terms of better regulation. And in terms of the single market as well, I mean that's that, that, that's clearly that's clearly important. Again, Andre, I just I was I must admit I was a bit surprised. I agree on your point about financial services. One can one can clearly see that's going to be a huge challenge for the UK. On the other services, though, perhaps, I mean I think one one thing that was sort of bubbling under in the campaign is that you know we always say we haven't completed the single market in terms of other services. Um, so perhaps some people thought, well, if we do leave the EU, we, you know, we're not leaving a single market in that sense. That that hasn't that hasn't yet been completed. Uh, you know, some so, some UK businesses might have been thinking, well, I can't yet um, sell through a single market. So I think that re-emphasises the point for for, for Europe con to continue to build um, its single market, particularly across a broad range of services. Um, then, very quickly, in terms of that was the business Europe position in terms of the, in terms of the UK response. In terms of, uh, I mean, the CBI in the UK. Um, I think they said um, that the country has spoken, um, and it's for us to listen. Um, I mean, I think that's very much. Um, I mean, I think I, I think it's in line, in a sense, with 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 what what Glenn said, and I think it was my immediate reaction as well. So my reaction, in a, in a sense, is. You know, this is where we are. And I think it's a very British reaction. This is what's happened. We now need to get on with it. So I wouldn't disagree with you, Andre, that it's going to be extremely difficult and there may not be a positive solution. But that was my take on your point, Glenn. And I, th I think it's probably a lot of, you know, I think that's quite a British, the British stiff upper lift we always talk about. You know, that's quite a British response that, that you know, that's where we are now. We have to pull together and, uh, and make the most of it. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you. That sounded very pragmatic, James. <laughs> and I hope that this attitude will still remain the majority attitude in, in the UK. Maria, last but not least, and it's been a long panel, and perhaps afterwards we really open up and for questions already, okay. I think. No? Well, thanks, Gudrun. Thanks very much. And uh, let me uh, start with agreeing with James on, 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 on saying that uh, he's not the only one who was not expecting this outcome. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were not expecting this outcome, including the financial markets. If you, if you judge from the surprise reaction on, on Friday, this is how much I think this whole outcome actually defies logic. 
which is an important point uh, to make, uh, because that means that we actually haven't seen the, 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 uh, the last of a market correction in this respect. That's one thing. So a little bit of complacency as well as kind of disbelief led to this surprise. Uh, my second point is that, um, and it's really in the same line of thinking, um, one of the issues that's becoming increasingly clear to me, and actually James alluded to this as well, is how little economics actually mattered in this referendum. Um, and, and this is despite the fact that we've seen a very rare case of unity between uh, economists who actually pointed out there can only be losses out of this uh, event, uh, but it was not sufficient, and I actually even doubt that it was ever relevant. Um, so what do I take from these two observations? Uh, the first one is that if we are ever going to revive this project called Europe, we cannot do it on its economic merits. It didn't work for the UK, and I'm not sure that it would work for others. What the citizen in Europe, certainly in the UK, but I think in other European countries as well, sees is unemployment, they see insecurity, they see indebtedness, loss of wealth, expensive housing. The benefits of Europe, which may be very clear in my head, I don't think they're very obvious to the citizen. Uh, and at this point, they remain just a counterfactual. Uh, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't been part of the EU? And therefore, they're just intangible. That's the first thing. The second thing that I take from all of this is let's go back and ask why did we have this referendum in the first place? It was never really about the pros and cons of membership. It was much more about internal issues, you know, uh, disciplining the dissidents in the Tory party and establishing political stability. So it's not just the citizen here that is, is disengaged, it's actually the government as well. So if there's one thing that we learn, uh, I mean, I say that very humbly, um, is that we must never put populist demands above national interest. I'll come back to this point. So what happens, what happens next? Well, the, the, the one thing I can foresee is great political instability in the UK. There's two things that need to happen with regards to the Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. The first one is it needs to be endorsed by the UK Parliament through a majority. That's one thing. And the second thing that needs to happen is uh, the, British, the UK government will have to actually trigger it. Now, uh, let me argue why I don't think that uh, uh, these are not just mere formalities, and they're very far from being foregone conclusions. Uh, the first thing is Prime Minister Cameron said on Friday that he will not be the one to trigger that article. It will have to be his successor. That's not going to happen at least till October, when the Tory party meets in its conference to elect a new uh, leader. That's one thing. That's one obstacle, if you like. The second obstacle is, is Mrs. Sturgeon, who is the First Minister in Scotland, has told her people that the UK they had voted for to stay in, referring to the referendum last year, no longer exists. Now, I'm sure that Mrs. Sturgeon would not be calling for an extra referendum on this issue on the independence of Scotland unless she was pretty sure she was going to win it. Uh, but effectively, she has pre-announced it. And on top of that, there's now issues of uh, the Scottish Parliament being able to veto the Brexit, which is, you know, adds an extra layer of difficulty. So with this background, the 650 MEPs, I, th I think I got this number right, of, of, the, uh, of the House of Commons, they're asked to endorse a non-legally binding referendum outcome that is arguably not only ending existing relations with the EU, but is also breaking up the UK. Now, this is not a political dilemma that should be taken lightly for any of these MEPs. Some of them will be voting with their consciousness, others will be voting with their political commitments. Either way, I think this could be very politically damaging. The UK, nobody in the UK will come out of this unscathed, in my view. In the meantime, Labour leadership is under great pressure. A lot of uh, shadow cabinet members yesterday resigned. 
This will only increase the pressure for early elections. I think we need two-thirds majority in the House of Commons to trigger these elections. Then it would be very nice to see pro-euro platforms uh, running, but you know, who knows at this point. But my point here is that none of these comments I just made preclude the two necessary steps that need to happen for Article 50 to be triggered. So I really don't know how long this process is going to, is going to last. So, and, okay, despite all this doom scenario, let me, let me end on a, on a slightly more optimistic uh, point. What we hear a lot in this part of the channel is whether there's going to be a domino effect regarding the referendums. Um, I think they won't. And the reason why I don't think so is for two reasons. I mean, there may be a demand for a referendum, but whether we're going to see any referendum is what I think will not happen. The first one is that a country that may be actually toying with the idea of having a referendum would adopt, in my view, a wait-and-see approach. Um, you, know, you would want to see how this whole thing is going to play out for the UK before you went down that channel. <laughs> that sounds sensible to me. Um, that's... Okay, this is dangerously close to being wishful thinking then. I, 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 certainly, I certainly see that. Um, but equally important, that brings me back to my, to my original lesson, um, this is the time to put national interests above populist demands. And, you know, if you're talking, Andrea, about credible responses, if ever there was a time to exercise leadership, well, this is it. This is where I would expect tomorrow the, UK, the, the prime ministers of the, of the 27 countries to come together and actually give credible promises that they're going to try and put these demands at bay and actually prevent a referendum from, uh, from taking place in Europe. I'll stop here. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I think we've been very long, and <laughs> but uh, we've covered, I think, a lot of ground uh, in, this, in this panel. Um, and I think a lot is still very much in, in flux and in the air and up for discussion. So I think let, let me really open the floor uh, for questions, comments, and please uh, direct your question to one, of, one or two of the panelists. Um, who would like to, to start? The lady there in the back and then the gentleman here in the front. Thank you. Oh, that is loud. Laurel Henning from MLEX. It's a question to Philip Steinberg, if I may. Given your policy area, I wondered if I could ask a more sort of energy climate question. I'm off now, or am I on? I think I'm off completely. Hello? I can, can, I, can you hear me? I can hear myself. Okay, great. Um, so from a climate and energy perspective, I wondered how this um, exit vote, whether it potentially damages the EU's united front at UN climate negotiations moving forward. And from an energy perspective, how does this um, affect Europe's energy union uh, project, um, a project to be united in an energy market? We were talking about single markets that aren't complete. Uh, the energy market is certainly one of them. So yeah, a question on that. Thank you. Okay, we collect, I would say. Um, please, um, the gentleman here in the front. Uh, thank you. I'm Professor Linson from the MAR Nepal Network. Um, I've trained as a physician specialized in neurosciences, so I'd say with it, were it not for neurosciences, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to discuss politics in the first place. Um, very, very quickly, um, yes, I, first I've been invited to, by um, policy office at the Commission to set up a work plan as the integrator. I won't develop this now. Um, second, citizens, citizens don't believe in uh, institutions and policymakers anymore. There is a need to overcome the prevailing suspicion and regain the citizens' trust. 
Um, it's as important to realize that we are faced with a global network of interconnected global challenges that can only be appropriately managed by first setting up a new global governance infrastructure. Lastly, uh, we are of the opinion that the European Union shall necessarily collapse. Uh, there are two possibilities, either fall back to its initial 27 or 28 fragments, which will be most unfortunate, we know what nationalism can lead to, or prepare the transition to new global governance. And here, I do believe that the European Union shall have a considerable added value, precisely because of its experience trying to manage 27 or 28 nations, and it shall also enable a kind of European rebirth or renaissance from a more realistic and global perspective. The conclusion is a solution uh, why not go ahead with the new capacity building program that has, uh, in fact, been endorsed by the European Commission as a potential EU flagship project? Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me collect further questions and remarks. Um, everybody's speeches. There's a lady there at the back and uh, here in the front and here. Thank you. Um, I'm Louise Paulson. My question is uh, to Benedict Segal. How do you um, suggest that the EU deals with the UK um, in a way that won't that will scare off, so to speak, other exits, and but still remain a constructive um, constructive relationship um, in the future as well with the with the UK. Um, is that too early to tell? Um, and how will that be done? Thanks, Christian. Okay. Please. Hello, Julien Blanc. I represent the University of Aix Marseille here in Brussels. Uh, quite French and simple question. Um, uh, as, um, um, some of them in France believe that for a very long time the UK prevents the EU to become, etc. Can you just have? Can we have a chat on that? Because none of the, of you have uh, just mentioned that. Thanks, Laura Strauss from the European Commission. Um, in a divorce, um, some people can help and some people can hinder. Um, is there room for an outside person, group, body to help help the divorce? Are the parties at all open to advice? Um, the lawyers in a divorce usually don't help. And uh, the lady there, <laughs> I think it's a good one. Olga Kletsky, Picking Alpha. Um, my comment regarding the divorce uh, as well. Uh, Mr. Steinberg said uh, kids never benefit uh, from divorce. I should say it can be a lifesaver for some children in the divorce. Uh, so we should open up uh, the horizon here. And um, my question is um, regarding the financial markets. Um, uh, there is a lot of talk uh, about uh, many financial players ditching London for other locations. Um, can you name any of the locations in Europe or they all will go back to New York uh, and maybe other countries or they will never leave London? Um, so, uh, so I see the gentleman in the front. And Bryn, did you also want to? Okay. So, so please. Uh, oh, oh, you okay? Robin, you're gonna know. Um, okay. I work in the European Commission. I just had a question to Philip and Benedict. We keep talking about um, a more inclusive, more social Europe as, in, as a response to 
to, to Brexit and, and more generally to the European construction. Um, I, I just wonder whether you would have any concrete proposals mm -hmm. on how it, 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 could, it could be achieved and, and mm. you know, also with a more pragmatic approach as, as we liked the, the UK to bring it to the table as well. Right. Cheers. So, so the gentleman in front and then Braden from Brugel. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. I'm Frederick Moro. I am a lawyer. And <laughs> so <laughs> I will try to help a little bit. <coughs> I was struck by the words of uh, Mr. Steinberg, and I appreciate it uh, very much. We, I think we need to regain the spirit of uh, the European construction. At the basis of the European construction, we have to remain that this is a political project, not only an economical project. So we might uh, find interest in moving towards this direction, especially with regards uh, all of you said that the problem wa we, we was uh, about immigration. Immigration is about borders. Borders is about security. It's an unfinished job. We have to finish the job of the Schengen area. We have to offer the people of Europe a true European defense because we have our own interests, which are not, m even if it uh, overlaps mainly, uh, not only the American uh, interest. So what about defense? What about the European and Security Union defense? This is my question to you. Bryn. Hey, um, so I organize the events here. I don't normally speak at them, but <laughs> I am, as you can tell from my accent, British. So, uh, <laughs> and I work in European affairs in Brussels, so I have plenty of feelings and thoughts about it. Um, w w one comment would just be, um, for many, this whole idea, the, the kind of French idea that Europe's been held back by Britain, I think maybe that was the case. I think now it's not. I think there is so limited appetite in any European country for a major big bang step towards federalism or anything, mm. mainly in France, to be honest. Um, it's not going to happen, is it? Um, <laughs> and then as a, as a child of a very northern European divorce, both within my family and now within my country, um, the, the kids can come out of it all right, but you do have to think about them. What I'd say is the result was so close in the UK, and I wouldn't say it was an explosion of nationalism or racism, but there is no way they would have got that 2% victory without 2% of racist nationalists. That is true, that's how mm -hmm. it was won. However, there's very little of that amongst young people, and I think the effectiveness of the European dream of open borders and being connected to something wider has even in Britain actually begun to hit home amongst younger people. And I would say that's something that really has to be protected, both within whatever kind of consolidation the EU does with programs it offers, but also whatever deal is struck with Britain. I would really, really fight the corner, as we all have our little shopping list now of what we want to save for Erasmus and EBS and programs like that, because I think they have genuinely transformed people's identities. Hi, Nicola Filippone from the European Commission. Uh, I had um, a question. Basically, there was this uh, this remark by Maria that the, uh, there would not be any referendum in the short term, meaning that basically the question on whether we other countries might want to leave or remain in the EU will be something that will be answered by the next cycle of general elections, which will be required to take place, for example, in France in 2017. Um, that means also that in the short term, the idea of having a, an ambitious European response, because there will be no democratic legitimacy for having this kind of thing done by the by national policymaker, will not be done. So I'm, I'm just wanting to know what your idea is on the, the next steps for the EU. And everybody here was kind of agreeing that we should maybe 
I mean, being from the European Commission, I say uh, we, but uh, we should maybe do do um, uh, less, but maybe better. And and the kind of thing also that you refer to are uh, migration, social rights, which are possibly uh, areas where the the people in Europe do not trust the European uh, Union to to actually do anything. I mean, there were talks about the European defense. It's not something where the people actually trust that those organizations can do something. But the, so the risk I see here is that we will gradually um, take the EU back to some being only a single market, which to me is precisely the vision of Europe, which was rejected by citizens in the UK. So is that a risk for you? Yeah, my question is uh, actually linked with that one. Um, I wonder if uh, you could perhaps comment on the next steps for Europe in terms of flexibility. Um, because whilst some of the uh, panellists said that this referendum wasn't a referendum on Europe, we've got to remember it was a little bit. Of course, there were other <laughs> other issues as well. But this was uh, this was also a um, you know a historic question for the UK about its relationship with the European Union, and that was definitely a factor. So um, so Britons have traditionally wanted an à la carte um, EU. Um, and we've talked about EU at sort of different tiers, different speeds. Perhaps we can, could you talk a little bit about whether or not this inserts some flexibility in, uh, uh, into the EU? Yes, thank you, Katalin Harma, Hungarian journalist. Uh, my question is to the panel um, and about the responses of the EU. EU. Um, some people have been suggesting for quite a time that the response of the EU must be a grand project, a big project, a big initiative to deepen the integration. Others say that it would be counterproductive. So what is your comment? What is your reaction to this? Do you think it is time for the EU to come up with a big project to deepen the integration or it would be a counterproductive action? Thank you. Okay, um, let's turn back to our panelists. Um, I think we have uh, each of us uh, basically uh, um, two minutes maximum. <laughs> so um, uh, shall we do in the same same order as, as we did at the beginning, Glenn? Well, I'll take uh, not all of the questions or comments, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll restrict myself to the economy and, uh, and the single market, I think. Um, so... My starting point, like James, we are, the, as Brits, we are great pragmatists. Mm -hmm. and, and also from a business perspective, I would be pragmatic. So I think, if I think back again to what do, what do businesses think, they think that the single market is the most important thing. When we asked our members, the most important thing for them was uh, participating in the single market. And I say participating in because there's much talk about, uh, particularly back home in the, in the Leave campaign, about access to the single market. And clearly there is a difference. Um, as far, I think the other thing that I would say is that as far as the, the single market goes and the questions about you know, uh, Europe, its disintegration or the, the, the potential for, uh, for Europe to, to, to collapse. When I look around, I think that there are lots and lots of good pragmatic reasons why it should not as well. I think that there are an awful lot of strengths. And certainly, if I think about what is good for us economically, I would say, no, 
Definitely not. Let's not let, let's not let that happen. If I think about the, the energy market as an, as an example, that's something which needs to go on. I would be looking for the EU to do things which it can achieve, which will make a difference. And that's a straightforward thing that Europe can achieve, which will make a difference. So for me, that's, that would be my approach, that we should get on, do the things that we can. I think that grand projects, uh, big vision response is very difficult when I don't see any unity around what a response should be in the EU 27 either. So uh, with that as a background, then I think we should do the things that we can. Okay, I won't reply to uh, everything. I'll try to sort out, um, you know, my contribution to what I think would be uh, would be better. Um, one point was: uh, Has UK prevented uh, progress in Europe? My answer would be yes, and I could I could give very concrete examples on social issues um, like temporary workers. At the time, I was working and fighting for equal treatment for temporary workers. And uh, I would mention the then uh, head of government in France, but we were supported by the then uh, French government and opposed by the then uh, Labour government in UK, which uh, was a big embarrassment. I could mention also the services directive and so on. So yes, um, th there was an attitude that the EU should be uh, free market and the rest left uh, to the uh, national level. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we should have an attitude to say, well, goodbye, UK, it's going to be very simple because uh, UK remains a big uh, economy and uh, UK is a European country. And uh, for the European project, I think it's, uh, it, would be, it will be, it will be, not would be, it will be a big loss. Um, on what do I mean when I say more social Europe? Uh, first, I think we have to have economic policies that are caring about inequalities, about poverty, uh, and uh, falling wages. If we don't do that, that's the first thing for social Europe. Second, we need to have a policy on the posting of workers that secure equal treatment, equal wages. We haven't had that, and we are now feeling the consequences. People know what is happening. Third, we need policies on health and safety. This is very concrete, very concrete for workers, and it is considered by many has uh, a problem. Uh, working time, working time directive. And then I would say, what happened to social dialogue? I think now in UK, social dialogue is going to be essential if workers are not going to bear the brunt of what's going to, to happen. The last thing I want to say uh, is, and I'm, add to that financial markets, but I've, I have uh, intervened on that in my, in my intervention. How to deal with the UK? I say that I would not be putting 
too much pressure on UK to trigger Article 50 because it is their business. And I think, I think they have to do it in a way that is, they must have a plan. But what we should not be doing is have a treatment for the UK which would give them everything and just you know, forget about the rights, the type of Europe we want to have, including social rights. So once it's done, they can't have, um, how do you say in English? Le beurre et l'argent du beurre, anyway. Thank you very much indeed, I mean, I, I knew, but okay. So, so I, would, I would, they are not, they are friends, they, they I mean, <laughs> we have, we have so many friends there, we know they are important, they have to find their way through that, but once it's done, it's done. And, uh, and so it will be a divorce, and I quite agree that sometimes divorce can be positive for the kids. Uh, two points, one about the, the single market and one about your, your last question about you know, the big uh, step forward or not. Uh, on, on the single market, I, I, I do think that there is a misunderstanding. Um, you know, when, when we talk about single market, uh, one does give the impression that within a single market, it's only market forces that matter. But in our modern uh, market economies and single market, there's a lot of regulation uh, that underpins uh, that market. And that's where the heart of the issue is. Uh, it's not about whether uh, goods uh, can move freely and whether there are borders uh, like tariff and non-tariff barriers, right? Is it whether or not one does share the same regulation? And this is those intrusive uh, regulation. And the, in, the regulation, they're intrusive on the one hand, but that's, they are the ones that, by sharing them, allow the market really to be shared by, by everyone. And I think this is going to be the, 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 the crux uh, of the matter. Uh, how much uh, uh, will the EU and the UK be willing to share the same regulation, which will be the EU regulation, right? Uh, it won't be whether the EU will want to share. That's simply reality. It's not whether the EU will adopt UK regulation. It will be how much the UK is willing to continue to uh, uh, live with the, uh, the EU regulation, how much one wants to repatriate to Westminster the regulatory uh, powers. And by the way, I think there, there, there's going to be all kinds of interesting issues, for instance, even with the, one of the fundamental regulatory uh, uh, policies of the EU from, from the very start, competition policy. Uh, you know, what's going to happen one day uh, when two uh, UK firms uh, are going to merge and Brussels uh, is going to say, hey, wait a second, uh, those firms are selling into the single market, just like two American firms are merging and the EU is saying to Washington. But when we say that to Washington, uh, well, we talk of the same level, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, we send people to the Department of Justice in, in Washington and they send people here and we negotiate and you know, we are roughly of the same side. It's, not going, it's never felt as you know, we are imposing on them. We are, you know, we are discussing those matters. Uh, with the UK, it's going to be of a different nature. So the, I think 
this regulatory matter is the crux of the, 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 the issues, whether it's in labor, environmental, any. And we need to find a solution. And that's a, a political issue. About your question, um, I do think that there is a need for some big initiative, but not a big initiative at the moment, uh, which is of a treaty change uh, nature. I, I, I very much uh, agreed on what Philip said. And, and by the way, I, I very much appreciated uh, what he said. I mean, he's the, he's the politician uh, on, on, our, on our panel. And I thought it was very sobering to hear a, a very nice uh, political uh, message that I, I, I really did share. And I thought it was a very, very hopeful uh, message. So I do think we do we we we, knew it, we do need a political initiative, uh, but a political initiative in in the in the economics domain. But that political initiative at the moment does not need to be probably cannot be one of sort of making a leap forward in terms of treaty changes. But I think there are many many things that can be done within the existing treaty uh, that could be uh, described as a major initiative. Yeah, um, well, on the relationship uh, between the UK and the EU, um, obviously, I mean, the truth is nobody really knows uh, how it will look like. We are here in order to find that out. I do hope, however, that uh, the LEAF campaigners do have some vision and did have some vision before as well, what they would like to, um, where they would like to, to take the whole um, thing. So that's, that's something I hope, therefore, I do not totally agree. I see your point, Bernadette, but I don't agree. We, I think we do need to quickly move on with the exit negotiations because it's not, I mean, sorry to say that, but it's not only about Britain. It's as well about the EU. And if we just, we are, we are kept in a constant now of our weeks and, and maybe even months in a state of uncertainty, that will weaken the EU. And therefore, certainly we in Germany, certainly um, the social democratic part of the government, we are pushing for swift uh, renegotiations and uh, therefore as well for debate about the future of the, of the EU. And of course, and that's what I said, and, and, and I think we agree here, um, it's not about a big bang. It's, uh, that would be totally the, worst, uh, the wrong thing to do, but it's, uh, it's about um, evolutionary change. And uh, coming to the question, so how to concretely induce inclusive growth. And I think there are, there are quite a few um, possibilities. And I mean, to be frank, once again, and, and, and honest, I mean, the commission, the Yanka commission has been doing quite a lot already. I mean, that is uh, the Yanka fund, uh, fund for strategic investment is such an idea. And I think we should go on and establish it into a permanent entity, which actually uh, fuels uh, growth and uh, investments throughout uh, um, Europe. That would be my first uh, proposition. Um, then, of course, we do need a reform of the Eurozone. We do need a reform of the stability and um, growth pact to make it, make it even more. And a lot has been done. I, I do acknowledge that. Um, but we need to make it even more growth-oriented, um, second point. Um, as a co corollary um, to that, um, I would argue for the um, establishment of debt restructuring, of a debt restructuring mechanism um, in at least uh, the Eurozone in order to um, give more leeway for market forces to, um, to work, but also to end um, um, austerity policies, um, exceed excessive um, austerity policies. So that would be my third point. 
And of course, I could uh, imagine something you can, can uh, uh, the wording can be chosen differently, but we do need something like a social stability pact as a corollary, once again, to the, um, to the stability aspect of the stability and growth pact. So we need to, and there I agree, I wouldn't go maybe as much into the details as you, you did. I would rather focus on the macroeconomic aspects, but I do think we need to strengthen um, uh, this, the social um, dimension, and therefore we do need minimum standards uh, in the social uh, field, but also, and that's a very important field, I think that we should focus on that as economists and as politicians. That's the whole um, area of tax evasion, tax policy. I do think, and I mean, the, once again, the Commission has been doing quite a lot using state aid law and, and so on, but it's should be even more um, resolute in fighting tax eva evasion, tax fraud, and um, uh, and even even though I do know that we have been discussing the common consolidated tax base for years and years and years, and um, uh, minimum uh, tax rates are even more important. I think this is exactly what citizens expect from us uh, uh, doing it, and and so we need to push on with that and really crack down and, on tax evasion. I mean, the potential is enormous. And we could use this money for social um, policies and for, for investment um, policies. Last quick point on the energy market uh, post-Paris agenda. I mean, well, I mean, uh, that's the Paris, uh, Paris uh, deal is, is a global deal. So, I mean, it's, of course, for the EU, it will be more difficult. And the EU and the UK, of course, was a very fierce proponent of climate change and, and tougher policies here. Um, still, I mean, uh, the negotiations will go on. And uh, there, I think this, uh, the UK um, uh, Brexit does not really um, affect those, uh, those negotiations in a, in a very, um, very strong way. Um, Having said that, I mean, the UK did have a different view on Europe than Germany and France did. That is something uh, true. Uh, that is that is true. Um, therefore, in certain way, it might be more more easy. It might be easier for the remaining um, EU members to to push forward. On the other hand, of course, the UK was one of the, uh, the, the core members of the of the EU, so it's a great loss and. Um, and we are, we are sad about that. And, and the EU as a whole, of course, will be weakened by the whole, uh, whole thing. But still, um, there are some chances, uh, and we should embrace them. Thank you very much. Thank you. OK, very quickly, three points. Firstly, is the UK um, prevented progress? I mean, I think, it's, as, as was probably clear from Bernadette's answer, some, uh, some, some things that we may see as progress, others may, 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 not, may not see as progress. <laughs> I, would, I would just simply comment that it was notable that it was the Labour government that, that, that you mentioned that was opposing the changes. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the Conservatives, it was the Labour government. So, so some things That's progress, some things... It wasn't the hard right that, that they wanted to put, to put these through, you know. Um, I mean, on the big question of the euro, I think it would be difficult to argue um, that it has been the UK um, that has been, been, been preventing progress, pro progress there, for example. Um, and I'm not going to come back on your, on, your, on, your, on your points about tax evasion. I would also add there that the UK has been at the forefront there is trying to, trying to drive the tax evasion. But um, suffice to say, I don't agree with every point you made on the tax evasion, but, um, but let's not go into that. Um, <laughs> The question at the front there on the security, let me just come back. I mean, my points on migration were a little bit personal, um, but on the security point, I mean, we, we, we've said safeguarding Schengen is absolutely key. 
uh, and we need to bring real European answers to the refugee crisis, as well as smart and efficient management of our external borders. Um, so that, that's what, what, what Business Europe has said, which I think is, 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 is in line with, with what you were suggesting there. Um, and then thirdly and finally, just on this, this broader question, I think came from the last question and what, what sort of Europe. Again, just to, just to re-emphasise Business Europe's position there, um, we've said it's a need to focus on, on the key economic pillars of the single market, um, the common trade policy, and strengthening the, the euro. Um, and I know, uh, in line, I think, with, with, with some of the tone of Philip's comments, um, just to repeat, that really means Europe focusing on, on where it can, can really add value and, and, and staying away, perhaps, from other, so, some other matters. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Just, uh, I will make just one comment on, on, um, on how to treat the UK. I, I think that, uh, I mean, I share what Andrew said. I think it's very pragmatic, and there is a difference of size here. So that inevitably uh, makes a difference. And, and, and let's not forget that, actually, the UK is now negotiating from a point of weakness. So you know, that in itself you know, starts us on the wrong foot, if you like. But I, I'd like to, to make a more general point on the principles. I think it would be wrong. Uh, for, the, for the EU to adopt a punitive approach on this, uh, these negotiations. It would be wrong, but also it would be counterproductive. Um, the EU has absolutely no interest in seeing the UK being an economic failure. Um, and I think that what we should concentrate on is making the EU an economic success. I'll stop here. Okay, so I, I think I have to take the last questions, <laughs> the, the remaining questions, but let me, let me add just, just two, th three very quick points. I mean, one was on the, on the city of London um, and how much of financial services will actually move. Um, uh, I'm, uh, frankly, I think it's it's completely open question at this stage. And we've, we've heard some announcements. Uh, we've heard some leaders already saying they, they would move. Um, I think it really depends on uh, the kind of agreement that, uh, that we will get. Um, certainly, if the UK was outside of the, uh, the single market, um, and would not have any passporting rights, I think it would have quite substantial effects, in fact, on the, on the city of London. The second uh, issue is, um, is on the single market, um, and uh, let me just echo what I think both Bernadette and, and André said. I think we have to be very clear and very firm that you know, participating in the, in the single market comes with rights, but also with obligations. And I think what is absolutely not acceptable is to, to get access, full access to the single market without sharing the obligations, be it in terms of social uh, issues, be it in terms of you know, appropriate competition policy, be it in terms of all the other uh, safety, health, workers' regulations, and so on. My third point is on the, the question grant project or muddling through, if I may call it like this. I mean. Uh, I think really for the grand project, I mean, in Brussels, we all have a tendency to sort of think, uh, oh, hooray, let's go uh, full-blown federal. Um, uh, but, you know, I think uh, we've had enough warnings that this is not on the table at this stage. So I think what we need to do is we need to do trust building. And I think trust building comes through concrete mm -hmm. policy action that is possible in the current treaties. And I think a lot is possible in the current treaties and that starts, and there I want to come to the urgencies, that starts with um, uh, the appropriate macroeconomic policy response, where, frankly, I mean, it's a matter of will. It's not a matter of treaty or whatever. It's a matter of will in the major countries um, of, the, of the Eurozone um, uh, that we prevent a, recession, a potential recession coming out of, out of this shock of Brexit. 
Okay, I think we can we can close here. I think the, uh, this debate is, of course, only starting. <laughs> uh, we will have lots of papers, blogs, uh, events in the coming months. Please stay tuned uh, to Brugel.org. Uh, thank you for coming today.